This is the Serious Sira Podcast, Episode 7, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sira, Episode 7. This is a podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. Now, from what little bit I know about you, and it is very, very little because I've never met you, you seem like somebody who really wants to learn about the life of Prophet Muhammad. Now, if this is true, and I believe it is, then this is the podcast that you want to listen to. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to. And this is the podcast that, inshallah, you will enjoy and it will begin your journey of Islamic knowledge. Because trust me when I tell you this. Trust me, the life of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, is connected to all aspects of Islam. If you want to better understand the Quran, if you want to better understand fiqh or Islamic law, then you really need to understand and truly comprehend the life of Prophet Muhammad and inshallah that's what I hope to give you in this podcast so let's go ahead and briefly discuss what we're going to talk about in today's episode today's episode we're going to discuss these following topics first the topic of the Quraysh trying to bribe the Prophet Muhammad the persecution of Bilal ibn Rabah the persecution of Ahmad ibn Yasser and his family, the first migration to Abyssinia, the revelation of Surah Al-Kaf, the Mongols' conquest of the Muslim lands, the revelation of Surah Al-Najm, and the so-called satanic verses by the modern author Salman Rushdie. Inshallah, give this podcast your time and just truly try to digest it. You will benefit and I hopefully, hopefully, inshallah, you will enjoy it as well. Let's go, everyone. Here we go with Serious Sira, Episode 7. Having said that, also, the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah and they were a magnificent brotherhood. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah. Nahmadahu wa nasta'inahu wa nasta'aghafiru wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakulu alayhi wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Alhamdulillah, today we're going to continue on with the Sira of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And when we left off yes, not yesterday, last week We were speaking about his We were speaking about, we, on the last time we talked We were on the fourth year of the message of Islam And we were going coming to the close of the fourth year and we spoke about how the persecution against the Muslims was beginning to become more pronounced. Prophet Muhammad wasallam himself was protected because of the uh, connections to his family, his, um, his clan of Banu Hashim. But 
the other Muslims who were not in strong clans or who were not from Mecca or who were slaves or former slaves, they began to have, they began to feel the real brunt of the persecution. The Quraysh, the, the pagan Quraysh could not do much against Prophet Muhammad himself. And they tried to formulate lies against him, but they have run out of many, many of their excuses and many of the things that they could say about him. One of the attempts to try to bribe Prophet Muhammad was done by Walid ibn al-Mughira, whom I believe was the father of Khalid ibn Walid, the famous general, Muslim general. He wasn't Muslim at the time, but later on he would become the Muslim general. Walid ibn, ibn al-Mughira went to Prophet Muhammad and began to offer him all sorts of different things, saying, we'll make you our king if that's what you want. We'll give you money. We'll let you marry the best woman that we have. We'll give you whatever you want. Just stop doing this stuff. Just stop preaching this message that you're preaching. And Prophet Muhammad made the famous statement, if you give me the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand, I will still not you know, stop doing my message, stop, stop uh, spreading the message of Islam. And so Walid ibn, ibn al-Murida had, had to leave with that. And that pretty much solidified the fact to the, to the Quraysh that they were not going to stop Prophet Muhammad with any non-violent means at least. So now they had to resort to more harsh and more difficult tactics. And that's when they went after the weaker parts of, of the small Muslim community at that time. And now we enter into the beginning of the fifth year of the message of Islam and the Muslims are the the weaker Muslims are being persecuted quite heavily we'll speak about two of the more popular stories these are basically the stories of Bilal ibn Rabah and Ahmed ibn Yasir and his family Bilal ibn Rabah he's probably the more famous one he's known as the as the Mu'adhan of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but before he became the Mu'adhan, he was a slave. He was a slave to a man named Umayyah ibn Khalaf. Yeah. Umayyah ibn Khalaf. And Bilal, he became Muslim secretly. And he was, the message came to him from what sources I've read from Bilal, I'm sorry, from Abu Bakr. You remember Abu Bakr was one of the main proponents of Islam, uh, spreading the message first amongst the merchant class, but also to others around, around Mecca as well. And Bilal became Muslim secretly. Uh, he kept it away from his, from the knowledge of his master and his master's family because his master, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, was one of the chiefs of Medina, so chiefs of Mecca, and he was one of those who were foremost in the persecution of the Muslims. So Bilal was really caught in a difficult situation. He was, you know, kind of like, you can imagine the difficulty that he was in. He was in a position where his master, a person who had complete control over his life, hated what he believed in and was one of the foremost persecutors and one of the strongest ones against against Islam. And Bilal, here he was, you know, no family to protect him, no no status or anything, nothing to fall back on. He was the weakest of the weak, a slave at that. And at the same time, his master hated his religion. So Bilal was in a very, very difficult position. Eventually, his master found out the different stories of how he found out. Some people say they walked in on him uh, uh, praying, uh, people walked in on him praying, and the word got out. And you know, somehow or another, it got back to Umayyah ibn Khalaf. When Umayyah ibn Khalaf found out, you can imagine how angry he was. He was one of the foremost. He was one of the foremost um, 
persecutors of Islam are the Muslims, and here he is, somebody in his own house or in his, within his own household, even though Bilal wasn't his family or anything like that. Someone within his own household was practicing Islam. So you can imagine, especially the way these guys, where they were with honor and nobility and respect and stuff like that, you can imagine how concerned he was about his reputation and about how foolish he would look, given the fact that here he was talking all this stuff about Muslims and about how Prophet Muhammad is a liar and all these things he's saying. And right within his own household, his own slave is up there praying right under his nose. So you can imagine how upset he was. And so he began to torture Bilal. And the torture is pretty is pretty popular. That you know he whipped him, of course. Let's say popular is, is well known. The stories are the story's been around for well, obviously hundreds of years. But what we do know is that he whipped him, of course, and whipped him, you know, quite badly, physically abused him. And the most famous of the torches is that he took him out into the hot uh, uh, desert of Mecca, tied him down, and tied him down on, you know, laying down his back and tied him down, um, what you call spread eagle, as you said, tied him down spread eagle, so his legs and, and hands were all strapped down. And then began to place heavy, had, you know, other slaves, other people place heavy stones on Bilal's chest in the in this burning heat. You can imagine just trying to be out in the burning heat for an hour or so without having heavy black stones or heavy stones on top of your chest. You know, and these, this guy did this while he was while Bilal was in the middle of the, in his middle of this heated desert, you know, put these heavy stones on his chest. And he would put two or three stones on his chest at one time. And you can just imagine how having heavy stones on your chest at any point of time, even the air-conditioned facility would be difficult. And here he is doing this in possibly 90, maybe even 100-plus degree weather. Most likely it probably is 100-plus degree weather in the desert out there. So Bilal was, had to suffer through this, and it wasn't just one time. It was continuous, consistently, day after day after day. Uh, Umayyad ibn Khalaf would do this to Bilal consistently. He would... Constantly tell Bilal, just renounce Muhammad, renounce Islam, leave Islam. And Bilal will respond by saying, Ahad, Ahad, which means one, one. Basically rejecting the many, many deities of the Quraysh and saying there's only one God, Allah. Only one, only one. And Bilal's story is very popular amongst Muslims for many reasons. Bilal was not Arab, of course. He was from Ethiopia, what we now know as Ethiopia. Back then it was known as as Abyssinia, so he was basically East African. And therefore he was obviously what we you know, he was much darker skinned than his than the people around, most people of Mecca. And at that time the Quraysh had some very racist tendencies amongst them. And they they had quite a bit of racism amongst them. So he was seen as a lower class of human being anyway. And so for us Muslims, we see it as an opportunity to we see this as evidence that Islam views all people as equal before the sight of Allah. And this is of course echoed in in many parts of the Quran and also in the Seed of Prophet Muhammad somehow Bilal had a had a high honor of respect. And so this is an evidence that regardless of how Muslims may act today, and Muslims can be very nationalistic or tribalistic, you know, maybe borderline racist, but it's really more or less tribalistic than actual racism. That's not actually racism where one group really thinks they're better than the others, others, though that does come up. It's more or less people really just clinging to their own own uh, clan or their own family. That's more or less what you see these days. Yeah, a little bit of prejudice may come in, but this is just weaknesses of human beings and individuals it's not it's not at all a weakness of islam at all islam completely speaks out against it there's a famous line from 
uh, the prophet's last sermon when he mentions there's no Af- no black is no Arab is greater is greater than an Arab and no non Arab is greater than a, than an Arab and no uh, black person is greater than a red person. And when they said red at that time, it really meant a Caucasian or person of European descent. And no, Europe, no red person is greater than a black person. So we know that Islam sees all people as equal. Is Throughout the Quran, Allah constantly reminds us. Allah doesn't mention anything about how Arabs are better or any, in any way at all in the, in the Quran. And the Quran is very inclusive of all, of all races. There's nothing in there that really can tell can give any one group of people any verge, any sort of um, uh, superiority over the other. There's nothing. There's no way you can read the Quran unless you really are twisted, twisting and really twist the meaning around. No way you can read into the Quran and see anything in the Quran that is anything less than a pluralistic and and preaches equality of all humans, regardless of their of their you know ethnicity or nationality or anything like that. So Islam is definitely against all these things, but Muslims, humans are weak, and so then also, you know, Muslims have come in contact into contact with other other societies outside of of the of the Middle East and all, where they already had, as we mentioned, the Kurdish already had their own their own um, uh, racist or tribalistic qualities as it, as it is, and all those things weren't necessarily abolished in the time of Islam. It's you know, while the major companions and those who were true to Islam may have had it, you have millions of people who are Muslim, you know, so there's no way everybody's going to be perfect. And so this stuff has, has gone on. And even when people then become in con- come in contact with, uh, the, with the British and the French and even the Americans to a certain extent, you know, some of those things come back in. And so it's just a natural human weakness, but it's nothing to do with Islam in and of itself. But Muslims like to bring up this story because it shows how you know, the true essence of Islam is that all, all people are equal before in the sight of Allah except for the deeds and their belief. And that's one thing that you one reason why you'll hear the story quite often with Bilal. And Bilal did go on well, let me finish the story of Bilal before we go on to the um Ahmed ibn Yasir. With Bilal, eventually the the story of his persecution became very popular amongst the Quraysh, that is became very well known and people were wondering who's going to break first, Umayyah ibn Khalaf or Bilal. And so it was became kind of an interesting thing for them to see who's going to crack under the pressure. And people were amazed at how Bilal was able to withhold, to withhold and withstand the torture that, that Umayyah ibn Khalaf was putting on him. Eventually, the word got to Bilal, I mean, excuse me, Bilal, to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr came and purchased uh, Bilal ibn Rabah off of um, Umayyah ibn Khalaf. And once Bilal purchased him, he set him free. And Bilal no longer was under the persecution of Umayyah ibn Khalaf. So, alhamdulillah, Bilal joined, joined the Muslims. And Bilal has a very, you know, he, became, he plays an important role throughout Muslim history, throughout the rest of the history of the Prophet Muhammad's life, and on even into the first two Khalifa um, and times of Khalifs of Abu Bakr and Omar, radiallahu anhumah. Bilal will later on become the first Mu'adhan for the Prophet Muhammad He will participate in many, many battles, including, including the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Ahud and many other battles amongst the Muslims. And even when the Muslim Empire began to expand beyond just Arabian, the Arabian Peninsula, he took, he took part in that as well. And you know, Bilal's story is very is interesting one. But eventually, you know, Bilal dies about, at about 60 years old, uh, many, many years later. And he's held as you know one of the Obviously, he's one of the first companions, uh, one of the first people to, people to accept Islam. 
Uh, probably probably amongst the first 15 to 20 people to accept Islam. And Allah knows best. Definitely, is definitely amongst the first 40, for sure. But, uh, you know, he may have even been amongst the first 20 or so. And Allah knows best. Uh, and even though it is probably for the next session, not next session, but the next chapter of Sita, when we go into the, after the Hijrah, Bilal does get his revenge on his on his foreign master, Umayy ibn Khalaf, after the Muslims make the Hijrah. But we'll get into that, inshallah, once we do the Prophet's life after the Hijrah. The other family, or the other people to be famous story of torture, is that of Amr ibn Yasir. His family were... His family were initially slaves, but they were set free. But because they had formerly been slaves, they were still of a lower strata within the Quraysh system. They weren't originally from the from the Quraysh and themselves anyway, and so they were from a lower social status as being ex-slaves. And this is the way they worked. Even if you were no longer a slave, you still weren't quite equal. Just like in uh, our modern society, a person can be an ex-con, even though they're supposedly equal, they're not still quite equal all the way through. Uh, for instance, an ex-con can't vote, and they can't. Um, in most cases, in the United States, they can't vote, and they can't have. Um, they can't hold have uh, weapons either. They're convicted of a felony, and so in Mexican society, it was the same thing. They were considered slave ex-slaves were considered a lower status. So, uh, Ahmed ibn Yasser, his father name was Yasser, his mother name was Sumaya. These two were ex-slaves, and. Because of their former status as slaves, they were still of a lower lower status in the Quraysh society. Eventually, the word got out. They also became Muslim very early on. And eventually, the word got out, and they were tortured by the Banu Makhzum tribe. Banu Makhzum tribe was the same tribe that Abu Jal belonged to. Remember to Abu Jal, who was perhaps the prominent, the most prominent enemy of Islam in the beginning between him and Abu Lahab. It's kind of hard to figure out who was worse. I'll Allah has cursed Abu Lahab in the Quran, so maybe Abu Lahab is worse. Allah knows best, but they were both pretty bad. Abu Jal, he persecuted the entire family. Yasser, his father and his mother. Yasser, I'm sorry, Amar and, and Amar's mother, um, Sumaya. He persecuted all, all three of them. Eventually, uh, Yasser, just, he was an older man. His son, um, Ahmad, Ahmad himself was probably in his 30s, maybe pushing his 40s by this time. So you consider his father was not really young either. So he was probably at least 50 to 60 years old. And so Yasser, he died just from the torture of himself. The torture was just so, so much that he eventually just died from out of torture. And Sumaya, she lasted a little bit longer, but she was eventually, as the story say, Abu Jal just, just uh, basically impaled her on on a spear and ran a, a spear through her and killed her with that even after all the torture and so Amr ibn Yasir he sees his two parents lying before him dead and murdered and now Abu Jal comes to him basically saying that well you're next if you don't give up if you don't give up what you believe and Amr ibn Yasir he denounces Prophet Muhammad to save his life in order not to be killed and he basically says that he doesn't believe or he denounces Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu says he's a liar and he does this to escape the torture. So he's freed from that. You can imagine that, I mean, obviously everyone knows that he's being tortured and so I don't think anyone will have a, a, will have a negative opinion of him. But in case somebody is foolish enough to have a negative opinion of him, you can imagine the shock he was going through. You can imagine your loved ones, your mother and father being tortured to death before your very eyes for days and days and days at a time and then being killed. 
So you really can't blame him for what he's for what he's done. None of us have seen anyone being out. I'm sure none of us have seen anyone being tortured. But now, I'm not just seeing a human being being tortured, but the two people you love your mother, you you love the most, your mother and your father, you know, being tortured to death before your very eyes. I mean, that's not something that anyone should judge him for. He he went back to Prophet Muhammad Sallam after they freed him. After he renounced Prophet Muhammad Sallam, he went back to him. He went back to him crying. And telling the Prophet Muhammad what happened. And the Prophet asked him, Well, what do you believe in your heart? And he said, My belief has not changed. I still, I'm still Muslim. I still believe in you. I still believe you brought the truth. And Prophet Muhammad told him, Well, if they do that again, then say the same thing. In other words, if you have to save your life with this, then do the same thing. And this, is, this comes to the, um, the phrase in the Quran Fattakullaha mastata'atum. Fear Allah as much as you can. You know, so Allah has given us ease in certain situations where we can do something that would normally be haram to curse Prophet Muhammad or to say his lie is obviously haram. It's you know it's a death penalty under under classical Sharia, under Sharia law. That's death penalty right there to renounce Islam or to say the Prophet Muhammad is a liar. You know that's a reason for a reason to be put to death in Islamic in Islamic government. But here's a case where under Certain circ certain circumstances, one can still break this commandment or break this law in order to save life or limb, and so this is just an example of the flexibility of Islam. Even something as terrible as this, which we may consider, you know, close, to, which is like shirk in normal circumstances, this would be considered shirk, or at least rudda leaving Islam. Yet, you know, this is allowed to save a life, and Allah knows best how much a person can do and can take. Some people may have been able to hold out longer. Some people may have given up after the first whip, after the first lash on the back, they may have given up. Allah knows best. And we we can only, you know, be grateful that we are not put to that kind of torture. And may Allah protect us from that because we never know how we may fare under the same circumstances. So those are two of the more popular persecutions of weaker Muslims within the Meccan Meccan society, which is within the Quraysh society. Now, this is now the fifth year of the Hijrah, and now, you know, these are the two more popular stories, but there are many, many other Muslims. Remember, most of the Muslims, even though we mentioned some of the more prominent companions like Abu Bakr and Uthman ibn Affan and Abdurrahman ibn Auf, who, you know, these are more the prominent uh, Muslims who are part of that merchant class in, in Mecca who were able to avoid much of this persecution. They experienced some of it, but they did not receive anything like Bilal and Ahmed ibn Yasser and his family received. They didn't get anything that badly. But you can see how, but other than those those um, few individuals, most of the Muslims at that time were from the lower society of Meccan society, lower, lower status and lower ranks of Meccan society. But many of their stories are not really known or spoken of as yet. But Definitely these two had were the most famous stories. So now the Muslims began to ask Prophet Muhammad Sallam, when will Allah's help come? When will this torture and persecution end? So we're going through almost an entire year now of persecution. Throughout the entire fifth year now. Now five years after the first verses came to Prophet Muhammad Sallam, after Iqra Bismi Rabbi came. The first verse after those first verses had come now, we're now getting to the point where you know, we're now f uh, five years afterwards, and the Muslims again, they get to a point where they have to try to think of some way 
to get out of this situation, some way to address the situation. Ask Prophet I saw him questions like, when will lost help come? When can we be saved from this persecution and from this torture? And, you know, for even for those of them who were protected by the family, they don't know when their own family will turn against them. And as a matter of fact, many of the of the Muslims were persecuted by their own families. Even those who were not from the lower classes of Muslim society, they were persecuted by their own families. Omar ibn Khattab, before he became Muslim, he persecuted the members of his family who were Muslim, or the slaves under his family's control who were Muslim. He whipped them and tortured them to give up their Islam. And this is what all of them did, because they couldn't basically cross-torture other people, because, you know, is a basically the idea was no one's going to persecute my family but me. No one's going to torture my family but me. They couldn't torture each other's family, but they could torture the ones within their own family. So those people who were within their own, those people who were against Islam, they would torture the Muslims within their own family. There are many stories of this. Abu Bakr was tortured or persecuted or be, really more or less beaten. Not really tortured. He's beaten by his own family. There are others. Um, I think I'm... Um, Ma'ad ibn Jabal, I can't remember the name, but one of the companions named Ma'ad, I think, I don't think it's Ibn Jabal, it's another one, I can't remember the name right now, but he was also tortured by his family, and there are quite a few others who were tortured by their own family, by their own clan, because they couldn't really go across to other clans and get them. And even Prophet Muhammad, even though he was, he was protected from a lot of the problems, he also experienced some torture. For instance, we of course know that Abu Lahab, who was within his own family, you know, him and his wife would, of course, do verbal, verbal abuse, but his wife also would put th uh, thorns in the Prophet's path and in front of his door to just really just make his life a little more difficult than it already was. There are stories of the Prophet Muhammad making sajda or, or making prayer at the Kaaba, and then one of the um term I think is Iknam Iknama uh or Abu Jal. I can't remember. They put a a, a the, the uterus or dead fetus of a camel on his neck while he was making sajda. And his daughter Fatima came and started yelling at them and fussing at them and threw it off of him. Um and you know, have these sort of things with just more or less annoyances because they couldn't really come out strong against Prophet Muhammad because the family was, you know, one of the more perhaps the most noble family in Quraysh, and he still has some protection. And so they really just couldn't go ahead and get him directly. But all the others, though, they he still experienced some some pain and some torture. And the others, you know, some of them actually did attack him physically. And we'll get into that probably in the next class. I don't know if we have time for this class, but we'll get into that soon in the next class. We talk about the conversions of Hamza, Ibn Abdul Muttalib, and... Omar ibn Khattab. When we talk about the, their convergence, we'll we'll get into a little bit more of the person, the some of the persecution that Prophet Muhammad faced himself directly. So now, within the fifth year, now the Muslims had to find a way out, and Rasulullah suggested that uh, they some of the Muslims who were willing to migrate to Abyssinia, which we now know of as, as I mentioned earlier, as modern day Ethiopia. So he suggested some of the Muslims make this migration to Hij this hijra or migration to Abyssinia. And the reason why he suggested Abyssinia was because he knew they had a just king and that king was also a Christian. Abyssinia or Ethiopia then as now is primarily a Christian nation. Now it's uh, maybe 60% Christian, 30% Muslim. 
but back then it's probably 100% Christian, Allah knows best. But they practice a, a different form of Christianity than what we're mostly familiar with. They practice uh, Coptic Christianity. They're mostly Coptic uh, Christians. And the Christianity they practice is more similar to Greek Orthodox Christianity, which is practiced in A, Greece, but also Russia and other places like that. So it's, slight, it's different from the Christianity that we're used to in the West, which is mostly Christianity that branched off from Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism, you know. So either whether it's Protestant Christianity or Catholicism, it all basically has like a Western form of Christianity that we're mostly used to in the United States and other parts of the um, United States, Western Europe and Canada, places like that. And then most of the Western Hemisphere, we're familiar with either Catholicism or Protestantism, um, however you say it. We're mostly familiar with that. Whereas in Ethiopia, Egypt, uh, Russia, the Balkans, um, Greece, places like that, they practice more of a, a Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and that is also similar to what the that's also something similar to what the Ethiopians or the Abyssinians at that time practiced. And they have a different they have a different year where you know whereas here in the West we know the year is now uh, 2013. Supposedly, you know, we know this is not true, but supposedly you know, 2013 years after, we'll say, the disappearance of Asa ibn, ibn Maryam. But um, Orthodox Christians, they have a different, their their year, the way they count the years is different. So I forgot whether it's, I don't know, 500 years more or less, but it's slightly, it's slightly different from the year that we have now. So it wouldn't be 2013 according to their calendar. But going on now. So the Prophet suggested that some of the Muslims travel to Abyssinia to escape some of the persecution. And many of the Muslims did go, uh, about 60, I'm really many, 16 went and included 16, uh, 14 men, my bad, 12 men and four women. Amongst them were, as we mentioned, Uthman ibn Affan. He was one of those who, who went over, as well as uh, Jafar ibn Abi Talib, who was a brother to Ali ibn Abi Talib, and therefore he was a cousin of Prophet Muhammad uh, He also went as well. So these these uh, 16 Muslims uh, migrated to Abyssinia and set up camp there, inshallah. Basically try to, you know, not really spread Islam, but try to live or practice Islam where they were in peace without having to be persecuted or not knowing when their family's going to turn against them. Amazingly, the Quraysh weren't happy with this. <laughs> it's like they they didn't want them practicing Islam in their country or within their borders of their city. But once they leave, they're not happy with that either. And so I don't know if Alano's best, and maybe they were worried that the, the word would get out and make them look bad. Maybe they didn't want any sort of uh, bad publicity going out about about Mecca and about the, about Mecca and the Quraysh. Alano's best, but they weren't happy with the Muslims even leaving their their nation. You would think that. You know, as we have in America, people say love it or leave it when they when people begin or if people want to bring up objections to some of the things that U.S. government does or something that they may object to that, that the U.S. government does. People one common refrain people use is love it or leave it, meaning if you don't like it, then go find somewhere else to live. But when the Muslims tried the same thing, the same the same thing in Mecca, the Quraysh were totally against it. And so they had to find some way to get them back. And so they sent. You know, one of their best diplomats, Amir ibn As, to go get them back. Amir ibn As is one of the most interesting characters of the early Muslims. He is like a, I guess, a politician 
amongst Muslims. He is one of the most fascinating and interesting characters from a historical point of view. I mean, he is really an, an amazing character. He was the governor of Egypt three different times. I mean, he is really amazing how his, especially after after the death of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and in the many different struggles of the, of the Khulafat and stuff like that, he his, his the role he played is very, very interesting. So well, his name will probably come up a little bit more, a little bit more if we uh, once we go into the next session, which we talk about after the Hijrah. By the next session, I don't mean next week. I mean once we finish before the Hijrah, which I consider one session of the Sira Prophet Muhammad. Then we go on to the next session, which will be another I don't know four or five however months that takes. Allah knows best. But my point is this: Ahmed ibn As, Ahmed ibn As. If you can do some research on him on your own, that's all well and good if you want to. But this is a very fascinating character. In any case, he was also from amongst that merchant class of, of uh, Meccan society, but he did not accept Islam, uh, not at first at least. He did eventually much later on, but at first he did not accept Islam. And But because he was a merchant and he traveled all over and he was a very good diplomat and a very good politician, he, he had connections with many different Many different world leaders from around the Muslim, from around the um, from around the uh, the area at the time. He had connections with the Byzantines, with the Egyptians, with the Abyssinians, of course, all the different tribes of Arabia. He was just a well-connected guy. You can imagine somebody like this now in our modern time. Somebody who seems, you know, you you talking about somebody? Oh yeah, I know that guy. Or you say, yeah, I know the guy. You know, I got a connection to this guy. Somebody who who's well-connected. You know, if you get to his cell phone his cell phone records or see look through his um his phone book you'll see that he has veritable who's who of modern society well Abin ibn as was that was that kind of person he really was just well connected with the powers that be of his era so the Quraysh decided to send Abin ibn as to go and sweet talk or convince the king of abyssinia and the title of the king of, Ab of abyssinia at that time was called Najus, which is spelled N-E-G-U-S or N-E-J-U-S, different way, ways. And Arabic is pronounced An-Najashi, and that's usually how he's called. And most of the most of the hadith he's usually referred to as An-Najashi, which is really a title. That's not his name, but it's really is the title An-Najashi is really just the um is really just his like um a title basically, you know, like king or like Caesar for for the Romans or czar for, for Russians and stuff like that. In any case, so Amr ibn As, he travels to Abyssinia to convince the king of Abyssinia, An-Najashi, to return these immigrants, these refugees in his country, back to Mecca where they belong. So he comes here, he brings a whole bunch of gifts. He, he knows, he knows An-Najashi very well. He's been to Abyssinia many times on trading missions. So he brings all these gifts to you know, to kind of sweeten the deal and to, you know, help win, win An-Najash over to his side. And he comes and presents his case before Najash. He says, you are holding these refugees, these people who have, who have come from our city and they follow this doctrine that, you know, that causes them, that, that is causing friction in our land. It causes them, it causes people, family to turn against family. It, has, it is one of the worst things that has happened at all in our in the history of, of Arabia and he's just saying all these bad things on these on about these Muslims about the Muslims who, who migrate to Abyssinia he says and on top of all that they're not even Christian so he's really trying to to work it on 
to work it on under Josh. He said, not only do they disbelieve what we believe in, they don't even believe in what you believe in. They say that Isa, that Isa, that Jesus is is not part of the Trinity. They say that Miriam is not divine. Is not is you know that we can't pray, that you can't pray to Miriam. So they don't follow what you practice either. They don't follow the Bible. And so under Joshi now, rather than have a knee-jerk reaction and call his soldiers and say, round up all these Arab immigrants and send them back home to where they came from, he calls them to his court to get their side of the story. And so the Muslims come, all of them who were part of this, who were part of the immigrant society. There was one actually who, I can't remember his name, he moved to Abyssinia as an immigrant and wound up converting to Christianity actually and staying there. His wife, and I can't remember her name for life of me, but his wife, she had to divorce him because he was no longer Muslim. She, when she came back, she eventually became a wife of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi and I can't remember the name right now. I don't want to say the wrong one. I don't want to say the wrong one. Well, I'll, I'll say it later. But she came, it happened many, many years later that they got married. But for right now, just so you know that one of the people who did go to Abyssinia wanted to become a Christian. And something to think about, don't be, don't become so, even though it is upsetting to hear about, hear someone who leaves Islam, and it upsets me too when um, I hear about someone uh, leaving Islam. Just know they've happened during the prophet's time with all these things happening all around them and all, all the miracles and moon splitting and the Quran coming down, all these things happening around them and people still left Islam. And it was a very small number, but some people didn't. Then what can we say about now? When the anti-Islam propaganda is a very well-oiled machine, when people have, when, I won't say anti-Islam, but when there's the sophistication of missionary work is at a, such a high levels, the, the sophistication of Christian missionaries is very remarkable and actually pretty admirable, actually. If you can, you know, take away the fact we don't believe in what they're saying, but just look at how well organized they are in their missionary work and how well they do it. I mean, it's something that, Amazing that we're able to, um, you know, we don't convert anyone. Allah brings people's hearts. But the fact that so many people come into Islam with, you know, considering the fact we'd have nothing compared to what, you know, Christian missionaries who are active in missionary work have, the things they're able to do, we can't even come close to that. And so evidently, if people are becoming Christian now, or people are becoming Christian then, Evidently, people will become Christian now actually also with, uh, like I said, the sophistication of missionary work that they have right now is really good. And from as far as um, respecting the way it's done, not actually respecting, you know, the fact that they do it. We don't, obviously we don't support what they're doing, but just the fact that they are very good at, at, at what they're doing. They're very organized and very well trained and, you know, in some cases they're pretty effective as well. But... The point is that one of the companions, even at that time, did accept Christianity. Now, Anajashi has all the Muslims brought back to his court so they can give their side of the story. And they choose Jafar ibn Abi Talib, who was Ali's brother, Ali ibn Abi Talib's brother, to be their spokesperson. So he comes forward and, and Anajashi starts asking him all these questions and saying, is this true and is that true? And, and uh, Jafar, he gives his responses. And eventually he quotes a line from Surah Maryam and talking about, you know, the, you know, the commonality between the Muslims and, and, and Christians as well and the belief in, of Isa alayhi salam. And I don't have the verse in front of me right now. But after, after he recites the verse, uh, the verses and 
as we, and and the translation is given to the under Josh. I don't know if he spoke Arabic or not. Um, Allah knows best if he if he did. But however, once they heard it, once under Joshi and the people in his court heard it, they were all crying because they were, they were all devout Christians, and they could see the commonality between what they believed and what Muslims believed. And as the story goes, under Joshi drew a line in the ground with a stick and says that this is all that separates our two faiths. And then he told Abin Abin to take your presence and go. And, and he told the Muslims that you're welcome to stay here as long as you desire. And so Ahmed Ibn As had to go back to uh, Mecca, basically empty-handed. He was not able to, despite being the great politician and, dip and diplomat that he was, he did not succeed in this point. He was not able to bring back the, um, the Muslim refugees. Now, around the same time that back in, we're going back to Mecca now, and back in Mecca now, around the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah Al-Kaf to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is still within the fifth year of the Hijrah. And Allah revealed Surah Al-Kaf. And without going to the stories of, of why Surah Al-Kaf was revealed, because there's disagreement about whether the stories are authentic or not. The point I want you to really consider is the story of Surah Al-Kaf. Surah Al-Kaf is, and it's a chapter of the cave, 18th chapter of the Quran. It is one of the, you know, is a very is a there are many attributes and many virtues of the surah, and we'll go over some of the virtues soon. I don't want to get too much into the into the tafsir of the surah, but I do want to discuss the three different stories, the three popular stories. There's really four stories within Surah Takaf, but really three of them are more, are, are very relevant to the surah of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The first one is the people, the story of the companions of the cave, Ashab al Kaf. And this is a story of where there were, this is during the time of, of Christians, before Islam, before Prophet Muhammad SAW came, the message, message of Islam. There were many, uh, there was a, a Christian nation, uh, it probably wasn't Christian, most likely Jewish, but it was a nation that was supposedly, supposed to follow the teachings of Isa alayhi salam. But the king of that nation, he began to divert and he wanted to, you know, go off the path of the teaching of Jesus, alayhi salam. And he began to force his people to follow something else. And there were some young men who lived in this area, who lived within this, this society, who wanted to stick firm to their true belief, to the true belief of, of the teachings of, of Jesus, alayhi salam. And so they refused to follow the, the king's orders to worship whatever he wanted them to worship. He refused to follow his orders. And the king gave them some time to think about it, but the basically was they did not change their mind. They were going to be either killed or jailed or harmed in some sort of way. And so what they had to do was they had to leave the city, leave this area, this town that they were living in, and they took refuge inside of a cave. And as the sort of goes, Allah sent down a miracle in which he put them to sleep for several years. Some say 300 years. The Quran believes says 309 years, Three. 309 years. Well, I put them to sleep for 309 years within this cave. And despite the fact that they were sleeping for 309 years, they did not die. Their bodies did not decay. Uh, they did not turn to bones or anything like that. They were just here, hidden in this cave, and no one could see them for 309 years. And eventually, when they woke up 300, so 300 plus years later, and they come out, the situation had completely changed. So where before they were, they were an oppressed minority, they come out now and the king before has died. The situation has changed. Now everybody is pretty much practicing 
the teachings of, of Jesus but now practicing you know what at that time is Islam or true submission to Allah through the teachings of Jesus and so now things have changed and you know this is just an example it correlates with the with the um, story of the people of the Muslims traveling to Abyssinia in order to escape the persecution of of the um, of the Quraysh, how these young men had to get up and leave their town in order to escape the, their persecution or the possible persecution or the threat of persecution from their people, and it is also known that this sort of there are many attributes attributes to this sort of in which we are even commanded by Prophet Muhammad or advised by Prophet Muhammad that if we are alive when the Dajjal, Al-Masih Dajjal, the Antichrist comes. If we are alive during that time, we should seek protection from Allah by reciting the first ten and or the last ten verses of this surah. Uh, I suggest you memorize them both. And also, amazingly, interest, interestingly enough, in the tenth verse of Surah Tukaf, there is a dua which these young men recited. For the first nine verses of Surah Tukaf, Allah is pretty much just giving Prophet Muhammad some comfort and and helping him understand that, you know, you're not going to be able to guide every single person to Islam. Allah controls that, and Allah is giving him comfort. But in the 10th verse now, the story of the people of the cave begins. Well, it really begins in the 9th verse. But in the 10th verse, Allah mentions a dua that the people of the cave, the companions of the cave, those young men who left their people to escape a threat of persecution. And Allah says, Ba'da'udhu bil'ayim min ash-shaytan rajim when the youths retreated to the cave and said, Our Lord, grant us from yourself mercy and prepare for us from our affair righteous guidance. So this is a dua that they said when they were, you know, facing persecution. Then Allah goes in the story of how he put them to sleep and then brings them back 300 years later. The next story of Surah Takaf, which is of importance, is a story between um, Prophet Musa salam, and Khidr. And, you know, this is a story in which, you know, we've got to refer to the Hadith first of all, and then relate to back to the back to the Surah. In the Hadith, when Prophet Muhammad salam, explains the Surah, he explains how Musa salam, during his lifetime, he was, a, you know, the prophet and the leader of his people, Bani Israel, someone asked him, who is the most knowledgeable, per- knowledgeable person? And Prophet Musa, Islam, being a prophet, and you know, as far as his information, as far as what he knew, as far as what his knowledge knew, he said, well, I am. You know, because, well, he was a prophet, and you know, it's no, not his fault for, for assuming that if he's receiving revelation from Allah, that he would assume that he's probably the uh, most knowledgeable person um, on, on the earth at that time. And so Allah wanted to show him that there may be other people and that there were other people who had knowledge that he did not have. And Allah is the one who controls how much knowledge a person has and how knowledgeable a person has and all this sort of thing. It's nothing, and then not that Musa was becoming arrogant, but just to show Musa a lesson. So Allah guided him to go meet with, to go find this person named Al-Khidr, which means the green one as, this, as the story goes, and to learn from him. The story is very, very popular, so I'm just going to breeze through it. Uh, I would suggest if you're not if you're not familiar with the story, then go read chapter 18 of Surah Takaf and read it and read the tafsir behind it. You know, really beautiful surah in and of itself, and the rhythm is is very beautiful. All of the verses tend to end with ahada 
or you know Rashada, Radda, and things like that. So it's a very beautiful surah as far as the rhythm is concerned, but also the meaning is very is very beautiful as well. But just to quickly go through the, the story of, of Musa and Al Khidr, Musa finally meets up with Al Khidr, and he wants to learn from him. And Khidr is saying, "You you will not have patience with me." You're not patient with, with me, and you're going to ask too many questions. And at first, Khidr didn't want to take him on as, as you know, a student, so to speak. But eventually, he relents, and Musa Alayhisam promises to be patient and not to ask any questions until, you know, Khidr gives him permission to. But he goes, so he goes along with them, and the first thing they do is, the first thing they do is uh, they come across, while they're traveling, they come across this boat, and the people on the boat knew Khidr, and they you know, they had to get across a, a sea or a river, and so they get on the boat, and they're going, and they're getting ready to go across the river, and then once they get on, Khidr he, he uh, damages the boat. He takes an axe and damages the boat so that it's unable to, is unable to travel. And Musa al Islam sees this, and he's like, "What are you doing? What is? Why are you doing this? These people, they give you a ride, they help them out, they help you out, and then you go and destroy the boat. This is their means of livelihood." And Khidr tells them, "Didn't I say you won't be able to have patience with me? Didn't I say you won't be able to ask? You won't be able to hold back and not ask me any questions?" And Musa al Islam he relents and says, "Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not going to, you know, won't ask any more questions anymore." And then they go off and they go off on their travels. They leave the boat and they go on on their travels. And then they come across a boy, a young boy playing. And Khidr goes up to the boy and kills the boy. And now Musa is really like, okay, now this destroying the boat is one thing. But now you're going to kill a young man who hasn't done anything. And as the, as the verse says, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem. So they set out until when they met a boy, and Al-Khidr killed him. And Moses said, Musa Islam said, Have you killed a pure and innocent soul for, for no other reason? And so you have certainly done a deplorable thing. And then Khidr responds, he said, "Did I not tell you that with me you will not you will not be able to have patience?" And so Musa relents again, and he's patient some more. And then the next time they go, they come across a town and they ask for help in the town, and nobody wants to help them. And the the two of them they're very hungry. Uh, Musa and Khidr they're very hungry, and so eventually though they see they come across a wall that's close to falling down. And so Khidr, he fixes the wall back up so it doesn't fall down. And Musa, you know, trying to maybe perhaps straddle the line, not, you know, knowing he's already messed up twice, he offers a suggestion said, perhaps, you know, perhaps if you really wanted to, you could have asked these people, you know, for some sort of payment. Since they haven't been able to help, they weren't willing to help us, maybe you should ask for some sort of payment or some sort of reward for what you were doing. And Khidr's like, okay, that's it. That's it between you and I. We're done. And so he begins to give him the wisdom behind the actions that he's that he's taken. And I encourage you to go read the surah and find out the rest because it's going to take a long. I don't want to give a whole so I've said about it. But the point is that this in relation to the situation the Muslims were going through at that time is showing the Muslims that, you know, things may be happening in front of our eyes that looks one, that look one way, basically from what we can see. But behind it all, many other things may be happening. Allah has a different plan for many other things. 
and that our wisdom of what we are seeing right now, you know, it, will, it can totally change later on. One example, I'll give this quick example uh, before moving on. I probably will go over my one hour today. Can't go up to or I got to go to work. But anyway, the um, during the time of the Middle Ages, the Muslim world was ravaged by the Mongols. And the Mongols were conquering the Muslim world and killing millions or at least hundreds of thousands of Muslims. You know, and the Muslims, you know, could not hold a candle to them. I mean, the Muslims were not able to resist the Mongols at all. And the Mongols just swept through Baghdad, you know, killed like almost a million people in Baghdad, killed the, the Khalifa of all people, killed him and just kept pushing on through. We got all the way to the doorstep of Egypt. They got all the way to Palestine, conquered Palestine, as a matter of fact. Uh, it got all to the doorstep of Egypt, you know, so you can see how far they had gotten through. They had conquered what was, you know, India, um, Central Age of Afghanistan, you know, on through um, what we now know of as Iraq, Iraq and, and Iran, and all the way through uh, the Northern Arabia Peninsula, you know, and they were threatening to go down into Mecca and Medina, but they didn't, they never quite got that far, but they were threatening to it. Got all the way to Palestine on the border of Egypt. They're getting ready to go into Egypt. <laughs> and Lano's best, had they gone into Egypt, there's probably not much the, the uh, Mamluks who were who were ruling Egypt at the time could have done. They would have probably gone ahead and got conquered Egypt through and two also, and who knows how far they would have gone. But Allah caused the leader to die, and that stopped the conquest for that period of time. Now, at that point in time, I'm pretty sure the Muslims thought that this was the end of the world. I mean, we see, we talk about the end of the world, end of the world now, and you know, the most you can say if you want to consider conquering, you know, two nations, two fairly weak Muslim nations, Iraq and Afghanistan, have been quote-unquote conquered, even though they're quite technically being run by Muslims, but run by Muslims, you know, supported by Western money. We know how the deal is. But still, we can only say that two nations have been conquered, whereas this thing, you know, thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of Muslims were killed, and nothing was stopping the Mongol approach. And so at that point in time, you can imagine how devastated they were. You know, we consider ourselves being devastated right now because of all the things that are happening in the world right now. But we're not facing anything like what the, they faced in the Middle Ages. And they thought that that was the end of the world. They thought that this was, um, the Mongols were the Al-Jujul um, Ma'ajuj, Gog and Magog coming. And they weren't, obviously, because here we are now almost a thousand years later. And the world is still spinning. So that wasn't it, obviously. But, you know, they thought it was, and righteously so. You could imagine they were. But with these people who came and conquered all this nation, eventually, you know, the grandson or the cousin of the of the ruler, not Genghis Khan himself, but one of his sons, who was doing all this conquering, you know, he wanted becoming Muslim himself. Even after his ancestors had killed thousands of Muslims, he wanted becoming Muslim himself. And these very people who conquered and killed so many Muslims wound up becoming Muslim themselves. And so it just so goes to show that, you know, things happen on the surface that we can't really, we don't may, we may not understand or it looks really, really bad on the surface, yet underneath it all, something good may be happening or something good may come up of it. Maybe not, maybe not right now, you know, may not come out in our lifetime. We may not even understand it until the day of judgment, until we're before Allah and Allah reveals everything and, and, and the forms of all these things. We may not ever know in our lifetime, but there's good to these things that happen. And it's a matter of us putting our trust in Allah and understand. And basically, I'm saying the verse when Allah says, Nothing happens 
of bad except nothing happens at all except by the will of Allah. So teaching us to put our trust in Allah. And we don't have time to go into the last story, but it's based the story of um Dhulqarnain and Al Jujal Majuj. And just goes on to the you know, I just mentioned a little bit of them there, but this not really we don't really have time to go into right now. There's one more point I wanted to make before uh, opening up for questions. Uh, that was there was another surah, surah being revealed around this time, uh, towards the end of the fifth year of of the hijrah and the beginning of the sixth year. Allah sent down another surah. And this was surah to surah to najm. And surah to najm is once again you know typical Meccan surah in the fact that. The verses are mostly calling people to worship Allah, calling people to believe in the hereafter. Very short verses. All the verses pretty much rhyme. You know, not you know, not much. Um, there's I don't think there's any um, like hukum or I don't say hukum um hudud. No laws being pa- passed in this verse in this surah. I gotta read through it again. I haven't read it recently, but I don't think there's any verses of. Uh, of law being put down in this surah. But the point of this surah, first we're going to talk about the um, the revelation in and of itself, and then we're going to talk about some of the ramifications of that revelation and how it affects our modern life. Surah to Najm, it was revealed while Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was, was making prayer at at the Kaaba. And you know, Surah to Najm means the star, by the way. And it's named so because the first verse says uh bismillah bismillah rahman rahim wa najmi idha hawa ma dalla sahibukum wa ma huwa wa ma yantiqu anil hawa in huwa illa wahyun yuha by the star when it descends so this is Allah swearing upon the star and as i may have mentioned before but Allah can and does swear upon Anything that he wants to upon his creation, within his creation. And so Allah sometimes swears by the night and so by the sun, by the sun, by the star in this case, by the moon. Sometimes he swears by himself, sometimes he swears by all sorts of different things. We, however, as Muslims, we can only swear by Allah. We cannot swear upon the star or anything like that. You know, that's shirk. So Allah can do this stuff, but we can't. We have to only swear by Allah. Your companion has not strayed, nor has he erred. Er, erred. Nor does he speak from his own inclination, but it is not but a revelation revealed. And so then, once again, just Allah confirming to the Quraysh that Prophet Muhammad was speaking the truth. Now, according to um, the story of the Sira, is that when this this surah came down, the pagans who were at the Kaaba and, you know, watching Prophet Muhammad pray and receive the revelation, you know, when Prophet Muhammad began to recite the surah, something came over them where they were, some, they were, they were compelled at the towards the end of the surah, there is a verse of sajda, and the verse of sajda, there I forgot how many there. Are. I think about nine or so in the Quran. The verse of sajda, you know, it is sunnah to make sajda when we hear these verses, whether we're praying or whether we're not praying. It's sunnah to make sajda to go down to prostration when we hear these verses. Towards the end of this surah, there is a prostration also, and when Prophet Muhammad re- recited this this verse of prostration, everybody. Not just Prophet Muhammad himself, but even all of the pagans themselves, they also prostrated as well. It's like they were compelled to do so against their will, or not that they get not against their will, but something came over them where they did it, and you know they did not accept Islam afterwards. But the the recitation was so great that they couldn't help but do it. Okay, and so with that, 
when that uh, happened and the word got out amongst Mecca, amongst the Kodesh and the Mecca that, you know, the people of, of uh, who were listening to it around the Kaaba, and some of them were actually the, the chiefs of the Kodesh that they prostrated as well. You know, when the word got out, a rumor began to spread that the people of Mecca had accepted Islam. And that rumor found its way back to Abyssinia. And the Muslims of Abyssinia heard this, who had made that migration, they heard this. And thinking that things had changed, many of them, they headed back to Mecca. But of course, when they got there, nothing had really changed. And in fact, the persecution had actually gotten worse than before. But we'll speak about that in the next class, inshallah. What I want to talk about right now before we close off is within this, this surah, there are a few verses here. Let me, I'll, just, I'll recite the verses right now. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanir rajim. Afara'aytumu l-lata wal-uzza wa manata thalithatan ukhra alakamu dhakru walahu l-untha tilka idhan qismatun duiza some of the early, early biographies of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi I say early, it's still about 300 years after his death, or 300 years after the Hijrah, I should say. But some of the early um, uh, Sirahs, they quoted weak and fabricated hadiths that said that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu had inserted a couple of verses in, well, let me first give you the translation of these verses. The translation of them is, so have you considered Alat and Al-Uzza? These are the names of two pagan deities that the, that the Quraysh used to worship. And Manat, that's another deity, the third, the other one, is the male for you and for him, meaning Allah, the female. That that then is an unjust division. So with this, um, some fabricated hadiths or weak hadiths were inserted into some of the early biographies of Prophet Muhammad so I'm saying that, you know, Prophet Muhammad so in, a, in an attempt to encourage the Quraysh to come into Islam, he slipped in some praise of their deities, their their, their uh, pagan idols, to try to win some of the uh, Quraysh over to his side, and that when the, and that when this happened, you know, Allah then sent an angel to rebuke Prophet Muhammad for, for for doing that. Remember, these are all fabricated hadiths. I'm not quoting this as being actual history. This is all fabricated or weak hadiths that you know. An angel came down and said that he wasn't supposed to do that, and so these verses were abrogated. Now, for hundreds and hundreds of years, probably close to a thousand years, very few people even knew about this story. I mean, hardly anybody ever ever really thought about it. You know, first of all, the they all came from weak hadiths, and most of the scholars had pretty much, you know, you know, you know, um, rejected all these stories, said that they weren't true, and so, but. They were in the, some of the early early sirahs, and you know some some scholars, for instance, Atabadi, he had a, he had an inclination to be very encyclopedic in his work, and he's a great scholar. May Allah have mercy on him. He's a great scholar, but he would include all sorts of stuff inside of his um, sirah and also inside of his tafsir. He was like you know he was like doing a tafsir, like encyclopedia of his tafsir and his sirah. He included all sorts of information, you know, both authentic and inauthentic. Mostly because not necessarily because you know he didn't know the difference, but mostly because he wanted to basically give all the information he could about any particular topic he was discussing. And so some of these um, weak or fabricated hadiths wound up inside of his sirah and his tafsir as well. But, like I said, his stuff is still, he's still a very prominent scholar 
and you know he's still at a lot of mercy for the for uh, all the work that he's done for Islam. However, he and Atabadi lived about 300 years after the Hijrah, so even you can see that he was you know many years after the Prophet Muhammad's on so it's on his time. Now, the the point of it all, like I said, most scholars had really you know disavowed most of these stories, and it was not really known within the vast majority of the Muslim society until the 1980s came around. In the 1980s, a you know uh, a pretty much unknown Indian Indian um, author, but who was educated in England in the in Britain. He published a book, a novel called Satanic, called the Satanic Verses. And this novel didn't really make too many waves at all. Nobody really knew about this novel at all. But within this novel, he basically fictionalized this whole account. Uh, we just spoke, spoken about these weak and fabricated hadiths saying that Prophet Muhammad some inserted these verses to, you know, convince the 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 um, Quraysh of his time to come on over to Islam, and then he took it out later on after Allah, you know, corrected him. You know, so he he fictionalized this whole thing, and you know, his I never read his book, you know, so disclaimer there. I only read you know what other people said about it, and I'm not going to read his book. I don't encourage you to read his book either. However, for almost a year or so after the publication of his book, nobody knew anything about his book. So nobody knew about the stories of you know, these fabricated or weak hadiths of the, you know, talking about this incident that never happened. Nobody even knew about this fictional story that, you know, that Salman Rushdie wrote that, you know, he was a fairly unknown author at the time. Nobody even knew about those either. But word eventually got back to the leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini. He found out about the, um, this, this pup, this book publishing, the story of this book being published by uh, Salman Rushdie. And Ayatollah Khomeini basically put a warrant on Salman Rushdie's life, giving $4 million to anyone who would kill him, something like that, $4 million. I think it was about $4 million to anyone who would kill Salman Rushdie for saying evil things. The, the, the story of the verse is just one part of that book. There are many other evil things that this guy put in his book beyond that. But Salman, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini put it, basically put a, um, a warrant out on his head saying anyone who kill him would get $4 million. So Salman Rushdie had to go into hiding in the U.K., when that happened, then all of a sudden the news got out and the media jumped on it because the Western media, the West, you know, Western world didn't really like Ayatollah Khomeini to begin with. And didn't like it on to begin with anyway. They took the story and ran with it. And this book that no one even was buying suddenly became a bestseller and sold out everywhere. You know, these the story of these verses that no one even Muslims hardly ever heard of became very popular and became all over the place. And this is just one more spoke in the wheel of Muslims shooting themselves in the foot by overreacting to stuff. And when this happened, you know, Simon Rush became kind of like a hero amongst the quote unquote freedom of speech people and the uh, anti people who didn't like Islam or Muslims to begin with. You know, these gave him some more ammunition, how Muslims are against freedom of speech and they want to kill this guy for writing a story and all this other stuff. It made Salman Rushdie very popular and very rich. And he wound up renouncing Islam anyway. He wound up, um, you know, he, now he believes in some sort of universal religion type thing, basically. You know, he, he was never, he was quote unquote, I guess, Muslim to begin with, but 
you know, right now, I don't think he, I'm pretty sure he's not Muslim now. He's on some some other crazy kick. But in, in, the point is just that, you know, sometimes we overreact to things and we shoot ourselves in, our, in the foot. Same thing with the cartoons in 2005 that came in that Danish newspaper. I mean, until Muslims started taking to the streets and burning flags and attacking embassies and stuff, nobody knew about those cartoons. You know, if we had just completely ignored those things, the rest of the world would have ignored, would have ignored those things. And, you know, we make this big fuss about this stuff and it gets all over the news and now the cartoons are all, all over the internet now. You can, I mean, even though most major news networks like CNN and a couple others won't show it out of respect, it's, you know, kind of ridiculous because it's all over the news, it's all over the internet anyway. You can type in Prophet Muhammad cartoons, it'll come up in a second. And it's all over the internet and so it makes us look bad once again, shows us being a bunch of wild, violent people who are against, you know, freedom of speech and so, of course, they show all the protests and everything of, you know, you know, I think that has President Bush being burned in effigy and American flags and Danish flags being burned and people attacking embassies and all sorts of stuff. And a whole bunch of Muslims died in all these crazy violence and riots anyway. Happened again last year with the release of that YouTube movie. That's still a YouTube movie. I forgot what it's called. Honored Muslim Death. I forgot what it's called. Whatever the heck it's called. The YouTube movie came out. It had been out for a long time before that. I forgot how long. Maybe a year or so even before it became news. But then it's quote unquote gets out and according to the story, the media, I don't know if all this stuff is true, but people attack the the Libyan embassy and kill an, a U.S. diplomat and all this other stuff. And once again, more stuff to make Muslims look bad. You know, very often we really do a we are really our own worst enemy. Sometimes we really do some dumb stuff to ourselves, and you can say that people are being that um, that we're being provoked by non-Muslims and all. But really, if we were a little more intelligent in our reactions to some of these things. It's like people know exactly what to do to get us to act like fools, and you know, you know, we just we make it easy for we make it easy for ourselves sometimes by doing these silly things. Okay, but just want to give you the story of the satanic verses so you know about it and know how re- how it relates to the story of Prophet Muhammad. The satanic verses don't exist because there, there were no satanic verses. Okay, they don't exist. It's, these are all from weak and fabricated hadiths. And I already told you about how uh, Atabari, one of the early biographers, he was still 300 years after Prophet Muhammad after the Hijra. He was 300 years after the Hijra. So even in his time, he was still several generations separated from Prophet Muhammad. Yet, you know, and he was a person who included all sorts of information because he was someone who wanted to include everything, whether he agreed agreed with it or not, in his in his writing. He's just someone who was who wanted to cite all as much information as possibly could. All right, just wanted to let you know how all these things somehow sometimes work out even now. In the case you ever hear about Salman Rushdie, and you probably will, or about the Satanic verses, inshallah, you'll at least know the story behind it. You can do your own research if you like to as well. I mean, it's all on the internet. It's all free and, free and available. So that's it for now. I went 15 minutes over my time, and so I'm probably going to be about 15 minutes late to work. But for now, uh, are there any questions or anything we spoke about right now? I can give you about five minutes before I have to leave, inshallah. Any questions? Then next class we'll be going into the conversions of Hamza and the novel is called I believe it's called Satanic Verses. This is, that was the name of the novel. It's called the, the Satanic Verses. Uh, that was the actual name of the of the um 
of the book that Salman Rushdie wrote. I'm not encouraging you to go buy the book now. but I mean, I don't encourage you to do that. But I also don't believe in hiding from things people say about Islam either. You know, I think we should confront these things head on and tackle them. Wayakum. Okay, we'll speak about the um, continuing oppression against the Muslims uh, next next class and about the conversion of Hamza and Omar and I'll bring us into the sixth, probably into the seventh year by then. And then probably become the boycott of the Muslims as well. Okay. Well, if there's no other questions, inshallah, we will stop it here.